Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 136, and today's guest is Lori Cashman, Managing General Partner of Victress Capital. A disproportionate amount of capital invested into companies does not go to gender diverse teams, and it is a problem. It's a problem and an issue that I've brought up multiple times in this podcast, and I hope the continuous awareness of this issue creates a positive impact over time. Based on Lori's background and the focus of her firm, it was a perfect opportunity to find out if we are finally making some level of progress in terms of capital fundraising for gender diverse companies. We kick off the interview on this topic and we address a recent report from PitchBook that shares some positive statistics from this year in terms of company exits, funding activity, and unicorn valuations for women-led startups. But as you'll hear, there's still a long way to go. Victor's Capital is working to address this issue as well with a focus on investing in early stage consumer startups with gender diverse teams. The firm recently announced its second fund and portfolio company examples include companies like Daily Harvest, which was recently valued at over $1 billion. And just a quick plug, I do have their smoothies in our freezer, which are absolutely delicious. Droplet, Somersault, Alice, and many others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Lori's background story and how she transitioned into an investor role, then co-founded a private equity firm called Lineage Capital. What led Lori and her partner Suzanne Norris down the path of starting Victress Capital? All the details on the firm in terms of the size of their fund, stage of investing, and how they evaluate startups. Advice on building a consumer company and why you should focus on retention versus paid acquisition and so much more. Okay, quick side note, are you hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? It's a competitive market out there for hiring and job seekers are spending a lot of time researching companies before applying. In order for your company to get discovered, you need content. A big piece of a subscription to VentureFizz is access to our exclusive content series, which tells the story of your company, your people, and your culture. We leverage all different types of mediums across videos, podcasts, Q&As, and more. If you would like to hear additional details, please send an email to info at VentureFizz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Lori. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to talk a lot about all the amazing work you're doing with Victress Capital, which is a, a definitely a, a very meaningful fund. Uh, and we're going to unpack what, what you guys are doing. Before we get into that, there's going to be uh, two pieces that I want to talk about. Okay, so first, you made an appearance on Mad Money, which I thought was super cool. And you were talking about an important topic that we're going to unpack here in a second. But what was the experience like on Mad Money? Mad Money was so fun. I'm a CNBC junkie. In fact, I have it on right now on mute. I watch Squawk Box every morning, but Jim Cramer is an epic personality. Um, he has an insane work ethic. I don't think he sleeps. And he shared with us at the before we taped the episode just how committed he is to diversity initiatives. And he introduced us to his entire team, which happens to be all female, because they're the best at what they do. And, and so he was very proud of the fact that um, that, you know, he surrounds himself with, with females who are the best in the business and the interview, thankfully he gave us some softball questions. It was much easier than what we had prepped for, but we loved every minute of it. It was a great experience. 
Yeah, it was a great segment. And, and that leads me to the second point of what I wanted to talk to you about, which is, are we making progress as it relates to funding female founders? Uh, it's something that needs to improve. And ironically, like I, the timing for this data couldn't have been more perfect. I subscribed to the Morning Brew and today they had some data from PitchBook. So this is PitchBook's data. It said, uh, US-based startups with one or more female founders raised 40 billion in the first quarters of this year, which is almost double the amount raised in all of 2020 and 2019. And then it's been a record year for women to sell their companies or take them public. Uh, through September, female-founded companies recorded 59 billion in exits, plus the number of women-led startups hit unicorn status in record numbers as well. So they great, gave these great statistics, but then they also kind of changed the narrative at the end, like, hey, this year there's been 239 billion invested from VC firms, yet only 18% of that was in female founded startups, uh, which that number seems a little bit, I've never seen an 18% number. I've always seen things lower than that. So I just want to get your perspective. Like, are we making progress and just your thoughts around some of this data that PitchBook had gathered? I do agree. It's encouraging. I mean, qualitatively, I feel like it's easier for female founders to navigate the path to funding now than it was even five years ago. There are more tools out there, more programs, accelerators, mentorships, and more publicized efforts on the part of big institutional VC firms to encourage female founders or diverse founders to reach out to them. And I agree that this percentage of funding is encouraging. Um, and we know that a lot of, of the funding may have gone to later stage companies that are female led. And we, it's wonderful to see female founders ringing the bell at the NASDAQ, right? That's that's exactly the path that we were hoping for. Um, one caution flag is 2020 during the pandemic was an all-time low in terms of backing for female founders. And so over time with future valuations, those companies may not have the valuation step up that they anticipate because it's often influenced by their last valuation. So we may need to look at a cut of the data that's more than just nine months. Um, it's it's certainly great and um, something to celebrate and, uh, and venture capital dollars in terms of absolute dollars are growing. Um, so if we can keep increasing our percentage of the pie, then that's, that is a great trend. And let's cross our fingers that that's exactly the direction that things go in. Yeah. And it's an interesting point of last year being, you know, the worst year. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's definitely some numbers that need to be analyzed and we all know there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's exactly what your firm is, is, is working on. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in upstate New York in a town outside Albany called Voorheesville. I was the third out of four in my family. I had an older sister, an older brother, and a younger brother. My dad was a dentist and my mom was a nurse. In fact, she still works. She ran hospice programs for years um, and she still goes into work every day. God bless her. God bless. That, that's an amazing job. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was always somewhat entrepreneurial, I would say, as a child. I sold candy on the playground at school for a while, which <laughs> got me into some trouble, but it was a real thrill while it lasted. I took selling Girl Scout cookies door to door very seriously. I, <laughs> I didn't live in a very dense area. So I had this idea to have my dad sell cookies in his dental office. And unfortunately, he didn't feel like handing out sugar after filling cavities was a good plan. But um, 
But any event, I think I did have some um, entrepreneurial, you know, bent in my DNA way back then. Yeah, I think I, I miss that. Um, it's harder for kids to go door to door to sell Girl Scout cookies or we're going to do a bowl of thon. Like that was something I had to do like once or twice a year for my sports leagues. I had to go door to door and say, Hey, will you like donate for me to, you know, every pin in that I bowl over, you're going to you know, donate a penny or something, whatever it was like, that was a skill set. It took guts to ring that doorbell and have the neighbors that maybe you didn't know as well, ask them the question and then ultimately sell them on. And they did because they were you know nice neighbors, but it was a skill set of kind of like learning how to just put yourself out there. You're absolutely right. And you, you quickly learn which, uh, which neighbors have the scary dog that barks a lot or, <laughs> or the, right. the woman you think is going to say no. And then she surprises you and says, yes, that's a real thrill. I totally agree. It's a, yeah, a great skill so set to develop. All right. So you went on and you studied at Duke, uh, public policy. So we'll talk about your, uh, your experience there. And then obviously you went on to, uh, to obtain your MBA at BU. Duke really shaped me as a person, both while I was a student there, and it continues to shape me as an alum. Um, I'm a shameless Duke fan. I brainwashed my five kids to love the school. My husband went there too, so I have to preface that. But um, in my time there as a student, we embraced the mantra, work hard, play hard. Um, I was involved in a lot. I I tried new things. Uh, I had a lot of friends, and they all had a lot of stamina, so for four years, we just pushed ourselves as hard as we could. And I entered Duke thinking I was going to law school, but my brother, who's three years older than me, was in law school while I was still an undergrad. So he talked me out of, of thinking about law school. I decided to declare public policy as my major because it was a combination of econ and poli-sci and one of the most popular majors at Duke. I liked the inter- interdisciplinary nature of it. Um, there were a lot of real world applications and we had to, uh, uh, there was a required internship in Washington DC as part of the major. So I felt like it, it enabled me to develop real world solutions to complex problems. And that was the key takeaway for me um, fr- from that major. One of the coolest things about Duke, well, there's lots of cool things about Duke, but um, I did have a chance to visit the campus at one point. And uh, what, what, what I learned was how small the basketball arena is and how crazy it is to get tickets to go to the Duke UNC game where you have to tent out for like months and months and months. And it has to be someone in that tent to get the tickets. So you just have a new respect for the kids that are in the student section at these games, especially that one. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's such an experience to be in Cameron for a game. You really are right there on top of the players and the energy is just unparalleled. I mean, I, I do feel bad sometimes for the visiting teams because it's it's just so loud and there's so, so much school spirit um, pervading the arena. It's great. We're going to um, the the last game for Coach K this year is Duke UNC at Cameron. Oh, wow. And we have tickets, so we're pumped for that. Oh, wow, that's so exciting. Great. Uh, and then you wanted to get your MBA and then, you know, talk about like, how did your, your career start to evolve at that point? Yeah. So truth be told, I really wanted this job at JP Morgan and management consulting, and they crushed my soul by not offering it to me. So I had a friend in Boston who told me about this accounting MBA program. 
um, you needed to apply to Boston University and to this accelerated MBA program and also get an offer from one of the big accounting firms in Boston. So um, fortunately, I was able to navigate that and be part of this small cohort of 15 liberal arts undergrads who had no accounting backgrounds. And we entered BU that first summer after college. They taught us all the accounting classes that we, we needed to walk in the building of the accounting firm in September. And then for the fall and spring, we worked in auditing and went to school at night. The busy season in audit is in the winter. So for those months, we just worked. And then the following summer, we wrapped up with full-time school and I had an MBA in 15 months. Wow, that's an awesome program. Um, so then what did you do next? So I have to confess that I, I didn't love being an auditor, um, but my parents really wanted me to get my CPA. You need three years of audit or tax experience to be certified. So I concluded that I wasn't geographically bound. I just needed to go work at another audit firm somewhere. So I moved from Boston to Los Angeles. I joined KPMG. I switched over to the tax side into a high net worth tax group. And that's where we had a number of clients who were general partners in private equity and a few private equity firms. Um, that was really my first exposure. I didn't even know private equity as an industry existed at that point. Um, but at the end of the year at KPMG, I was really ready to wrap it up. I thought, okay, I, I have my CPA, I need to move on. And the partner I worked for introduced me to Peter Seiler, who had started Seiler Equity Partners just a couple of years earlier. And fortunately, um, I was able to convince them to hire me as their first associate. Very, very cool. I, fun fact, I'm a KPMG alum from the state and local tax practice from, uh, what was it, 96 to 98. <laughs> Oh, how fun. Yeah. Salt, right? <laughs> salt. Yes. Yes. Salt, yes. Uh, the partner's name, Peter, Peter, I forget. I don't know. Anyways, it was a great experience. I, I learned so much from KPMG and the day I resigned was the day that they called off the KPMG E&Y merger. So I think I might've had some effect on that. No, just kidding. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what was next? So then I joined uh, Peter and Bob and um, that was a tremendous learning curve for me that we didn't have any walls in our office. So I truly was able to listen to every phone conversation. They allowed me to you know, drive up and down the freeway in LA, pitching businesses and fly all, of, all over the country. We did, we're just very active. We did, um, oh, more than 10 tuck-in acquisitions, a number of platform investments. In many cases, we were raising equity and debt at the same time. So I just felt like it exposed me to the whole continuum of what it means to, to invest in private equity from the deal sourcing to diligence to building trust in relationships with entrepreneurs and founders at the board level. Um, I really just appreciated that they were so generous with me and they were my really my first mentors in my career. And then you went off to start your own firm, right? Yeah. So then I, I, felt like the longer I stayed in Los Angeles, I was more inclined to never leave. I wanted to get back to Boston or to the East Coast. So I found a firm called Heritage Partners and um, joined Heritage for a while. And um, Heritage was similar in that we were investing in multi-generation family-owned businesses. So it felt somewhat consistent with the work I was doing in LA. Um, however, they had raised subsequently larger funds and were then deploying larger check sizes. So as they moved up market 
three of my colleagues and I really felt like the strategy we were deploying was better served in the lower middle market. And in fact, I think we just missed um, missed investing in those earlier stage companies. Um, you know, there's uh, the impact that you can have at that stage is different. And so we spun out of Heritage and started a firm called Lineage Capital. And what, what did that firm, like what was kind of the uh, focus within that firm? It's so it's similar to where I had been, you know, the, the, the essence of it was to uh, identify uh, found like closely held co- companies where the founder was still in control or multi-generation family owned businesses where they were trying to take some chips off the table. And the way we invested, we allowed them to um, have a liquidity event, but still have what we called the second bite at the apple, meaning we were helping to cash out. We, from a governance perspective, allowed them to maintain control. We had certain covenants that, you know, if, if, things really fell off a cliff, we could take control of the business, but the notion was really more like venture. It's a spirit of partnership. We're going to align on a strategy. We're gonna do everything we can to all row in the same direction, recruit top talent, meet these very accelerated growth objectives. And then um, and then uh, obviously there's an ultimate exit that needs to happen. And at that point, um, you know, either the next generation of family can, you know, some can step in, others can step out, or, you know, there can be an outright exit for, for the family or the founder. It was a win-win. Was it across all different types of industries? All different types of industries. Um, some consumer, some manufacturing, distribution, you name it. Yeah. That's such a good model of like the family that's been running it. It's like, they, you know, it is nice to have a liquidity event, but still have that opportunity for, like you said, I like that uh, phrase, second bite of the apple, where you're still working hard. And this is a topic that I think uh, it's definitely become real around, you know, the tech industry, where before the mantra was uh, founders shouldn't take money off the table because that doesn't align with the long-term interests of the company investors. But that's absolutely wrong. Like, like, you know, VCs have a portfolio of investments that some are going to succeed and some are not. So they have multiple chips on the table. Founders have one chip. It's that one company that they've been working on for so long to hopefully build something of value and to have the founder to be able to take some portion off the table, but have that second bite of the apple is, I think, tightly aligned with the overall goals. Yeah, I agree. And I I think the other aspect of it is um, for a founder to take on debt, they often need to provide personal guarantees. And that means if something happens to the founder, they get sick. And in many cases, they're the a primary employer in a small town. There's just a lot of pressure on those founders. And we, we can help um, to leverage the company and um, you know, use debt the way it's intended to be used. Um, you know, capital for growth and working capital, and because we're institutional investors, it's just it's almost not fair that way that the institutional investor has access to that kind of capital, and and founders um, typically struggle to to achieve that. All right. So then, what was next? And this is leading up to. Well, I was excited talking about what you're up to today. So there was a convergence of a number of events that that happened in a short period of time. Um, first off, I recognize now that I am a bit of an activist at heart. I guess in the end, my public policy studies at Duke did alter my path. Um, I had volunteered for Duke. Uh, at the time, the, the alumni office was 
uh, starting women's forums in major cities across the country. So I had volunteered to co-launch that and we recruited a steering committee. We were hosting a lot of networking events and programming for alumni in the Boston area. And I realized this is the first time I had interacted with women professionally. In my, my career to that point, I was accustomed to being the only female in the room. Um, and so in the course of that, two women asked me for some advice. One had just had her second child. She wasn't working. She had an idea to start a company and she felt guilty hiring a babysitter to give her the mental space to get some work done. And the other was expecting her first child and felt like she was at this crossroads and needed to make a choice between being a great mom or continuing with her career. And that activated something in me where I just felt so defeated, wondering how is it that we're, we're always making these choices? Like there has to be a better way. And it occurred to me that I never had a female mentor in my career. And what might that have looked like if I had? And at that moment, I decided that I needed to make sure that women coming up the path behind me didn't need to look far um, or hard to, to find a female mentor. And I knew in my, you know, my DNA, I loved investing. I had been reading about the female funding gap and I felt like allocating capital is what I know how to do. And this is a way for me to help move the needle around the female funding gap. Um, and as a mom, you know, I, I have a daughter and I really started to look at the world through the eyes of their generation and really wanted to ensure that I did everything I could to um, create all the right opportunities for all of these kids to never have to make those kinds of choices in the future. Yeah, no, that's, uh, is that those are decisions that they shouldn't uh, struggle with to that degree. Um, and it's great that we're making some progress that, which is, you know, a theme that we're talking about is we're making progress, but we still have a long ways to go. And I think, you know, talking to you and other um, female VCs is an important dynamic of why things are starting to change because females are looking at other females to invest into those companies. So talk about Victress Capital and, you know, your funds, your, you know, the alignment that you have industries, like just, let's unpack what you're up to. Sure. I need to, to make it clear that I have a partner, Suzanne Norris. Um, she's brilliant. She's someone I learn from every day. She had an incredible career as an operator. She launched and scaled the Kate Spade brand in the e-commerce channel. And then she went on to do that for a number of other epic brands in New York City. And so the vision for Victorious was made possible because of the combination of our two skill sets, mine as an investor and her as an operator. But taking a step back, you know, we, we had looked at the female funding gap, the fact that less than 3% of venture dollars went to female-led companies. But in the consumer space, 85% of purchasing decisions are driven by women. And we also, as we looked ahead, we knew that by 2030, there's this great transfer of wealth happening where two-thirds of wealth in the U.S. is or will be controlled by women. And wealth in the hands of women has a multiplier effect. Women tend to invest in healthcare, education, and their communities. So we just saw this, this convergence of a, a transfer of, of purchasing power or reinforcing that purchasing power. And we thought, well, it, it, it's smart business in the consumer space. If 85% of the decisions are made by women, maybe you want a woman on your founding team. 
maybe that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So for us, the first filter was, was gender diversity. But when we look at the data, we know that diverse teams outperform on top and bottom line metrics. So we obviously look at all measures of diversity in the founding teams. And um, we look at the demographics going forward and we know that there's a, they call it the majority minority, but you know, there, there's going to be more of a blending of all of our ethnic backgrounds and, um, and measures of diversity going forward. So, so to start with a diverse team, to um, talk to a diverse consumer audience, just seems like good alignment and good business. Yeah. And so, so what's the, the like size of your fund and the typical, you know, stage you're investing, check size or whatever details there? So at this point, we focus on three verticals in the consumer space, digitally native consumer brands, digital marketplaces, and tech-enabled services. We invest primarily in seed and series A rounds. Um, at the seed round, it can our check size can range between 250000 to a million. Series A and beyond, um, it's a million to three million. Um, we have the ability to, to increase check size with some co-invest from our uh, LPs. And when I go through your portfolio, I just see these brands that are, uh, you know, things that I am definitely aware of, like Daily Harvest, amazing company. Their uh, smoothies are in my freezer right now. Um, Droplet is an amazing product. They're actually a company that is, uh, you know, hiring on VentureFizz. So we did a uh, CXO briefing with Madhavi, their CEO and co-founder, and she is extraordinary, like amazing founder. Yeah, what I love about so many of the brands in our portfolio is I continue to have this really positive emotional reaction every time I, I think of the brand or I see it. You know, these are great brands with great products and authentic, resilient, tenacious founders who have a passion for the mission of their brands. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, from, from the moment we met Rachel Drory at Daily Harvest, we knew she had something very special but was also addressing a real pain point for consumers. You know, you want to eat healthy and there are parts of the country where you, there is not a, a juice bar or a smoothie place on every corner. And, and so she was, she was really solving that pain point for consumers. With Droplet, we're, we're so excited. This is a podcast, so you can't see my skin, but, <laughs> but we've, been, we've all been using the, the Droplet device and it's incredible that they've engineered this this device and the technology to deliver formulations 20 cell layers deep. I mean, it is, they're inventing a new category in skincare and it's um, much like the razor razor blade model where they'll be able to partner with other great skincare companies and allow them to use their formulations in the droplet device. So um, great holiday gift idea for folks. Um, and um, we're really excited about the trajectory for them as we are with all of our brands. Yeah. I mean, another one, uh, Somersault, but, but my wife received the direct mail from them yesterday. And that's a company that I was already familiar with because they've just been doing amazing, amazing work in their sector. They are. That team um, is strong on vision, but also incredibly strong at execution. They're based in St. Louis. They have managed to recruit top talent from around the country. And um, they really know their core consumer. They know who she is, uh, the price point that um, that fits them. And uh, I think they just continue to 
over deliver in terms of customer expectations. And, and as a result, there's a lot of loyalty and great customer retention for that. So how do you evaluate a company, you know, upon deciding whether or not it's an investment? We evaluate a company much like other venture firms. You know, we will look at the addressable market. So it has can't just be a niche business. It has to be a, a business that's launching into um, a big marketplace. We look at the the concept and the business model, the value proposition. Um, we pay attention to unit economics and a path to profitability. Uh, more than anything, though, we we spend time with the team. We need to understand that there's domain expertise or there's some reason that these founders are uniquely positioned to win in this space. And that can be just because of you know, the journey that the, the founder has traveled, but there has to be that reason for being. Um, and we like to pressure test for mindset a little bit. We, we like founders to really be dialed in and committed to, to their path or their plan, but we also want to see the ability to pivot if it's needed, um, you know, uh, whatever the signals are out there that they're capable of relinquishing, you know, their grip on what their initial plan was and that they're going to um, reorient and, and drive the business where the opportunities are. Um, and then we, we do talk about timing, um, not just timing for why the business should exist today, but also timing for exit. You know what? If there's a lot of consolidation happening in, a, in an industry, will our timing be too late? Will all the players have consolidated, and then the exits aren't going to look the same? Um, and we look at exit in general in terms of who are the likely acquirers um, for this business. Not that it has to to be an acquisition; it could be an IPO. But we like to have multiple paths to an exit. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, getting on. Your radar. What's the best way to hopefully get a chance to pitch you on my idea? You can email us um, info at victorscapital.com or any one of our first names at victorscapital.com. Uh, message us on LinkedIn. We we do go through our entire inbox, so we will reply back. And you've been expanding the team as well, right? You had a, a new operating partner join. That's right, uh, Taryn Levin. She and Suzanne, in fact go back to their days at Kate Spade together, they were on the senior leadership team. So I've known Taryn for a few years. I feel like I've known her forever. She is fantastic. Um, what we found in the stage that we're investing in, so seed to series A and positioning them for series B, she has this deep operating expertise. And so wherever there are gaps in the team, she's got the tool in her toolkit, or she has the Rolodex for business development. She can not only help open up new distribution channels, but she knows how to negotiate to ensure that the company is asking for the right things, you know, and getting what, what they need to be successful, um, which sometimes founders, there's no playbook for that. You just, you don't really know, you need to almost make the mistakes to learn. Um, and then internally, she raises the bar for us. She's energizing to work with and um, just helps us hustle that much more. Um, I should mention she's based in New York City. She has a small team that we work with also. And we have a vice president, Yuri Dovzhansky, who's also based in New York City. It's been great to have a consistent presence in the city. Yeah, New York is amazing as far as all the cool consumer brands that are popping up. So along those lines, what, what areas are of interest? Like what's, 
consumer products or trends that you're seeing that you're, you know, kind of your thesis investment that you're kind of leaning towards these days or future outlook? It's a great question. There, there are two areas we're really excited about and spending a lot of time digging in right now. The first is often referred to as re-commerce. So that's the consumer shift from fast fashion to re-commerce or the secondhand market. The market for secondhand today is at about 36 billion, but will by 2025 reach 80 billion. That's almost twice wow. the size of the fast fashion industry, which is at 43 billion. So a lot of this is driven by the pandemic. There were an unprecedented number of first time buyers of or sellers of secondhand clothing. And we think that will continue to grow. Um, clearly exciting business models like ThreadUp and the Real Real or marketplaces, Poshmark, Depop, along with enablement tools and services like Benny um, at various levels of innovation and maturity are, are helping to drive the trend. But more than anything, it's the Gen Z and millennials are the champions and influencers really crystallizing this trend. We, they're making thrifting more mainstream cool and it's also celebrated more when an, a great looking outfit is thrifted rather than purchased new from a traditional retailer. That's so true. Like my, my, my two teenage daughters, they love it like thrifting. And it's, it is, it's like, oh yeah, I got this. And it's, you know, it's such a great buy and right. And, and they wear it with, with pride. Yeah. And the major retailers, like for example, there's a company called Good Fair and Nordstrom has partnered with Good Fair on their vintage t-shirts. So, <laughs> you know, there, it is, as, as we say, it's becoming much more mainstream. It doesn't, it won't be as hard to, to uh, you know, shop for these kinds of clothes. And then the second trend is um, consumerization of healthcare. Again, um, there are a lot of tailwinds coming out of the pandemic around this. So um, we've been watching the space for many years and we've seen the evolution of traditional and historically passive patients convert into proactive consumers playing a meaningful role in navigating their healthcare. Um, they're making care decisions, they're managing their own long-term health and well-being. So we're excited when we see digitally native telehealth platforms like Galileo Health and hybrid models like Luminu or Real. Um, they've really empowered consumers for the first time ever to take control of their consumer health journey. And there's so much more demand there. And I think it's also conditioning patients and consumers to demand more from the healthcare system at large. You know, They're demanding more transparency, value, and a better consumer experience. So we're really excited to continue investing in this space as we look for differentiated and defensible models. Now, building a consumer company is really hard. Um, you got to build a brand, customer acquisition. So what advice would you give to founders on you know, building that brand and acquiring consumers to hopefully purchase your product? Our advice is to ask a few questions. You know, who is your company for? what do your consumers care about, and then relentlessly listen to your consumers all the time, not just for the first few months while you're starting your business, but sit in customer service every now and then, or make your whole leadership team take the open tickets and solve them. You need to understand where the pain points are for your consumers and understand that they may change over time. Um, we, we talk at Victor's a lot about building movements. We, we love it when we see founders with a maniacal focus on their customer. And that typically means starting with your core customer, your super users, your tribe. You know, if you can engage with them and use their feedback to iterate and fuel your growth, 
then you're really onto something. You know, if you can energize them and let them experience a feeling of belonging and a feeling of community, then they will do the work for you and spreading the word to their friends. And then another couple of considerations are to consider what could you be doing from an equity perspective to open up access? Meaning, can you, can you offer something at an inclusive price point? Can you educate or give access to an experience that someone might not typically um, either be able to afford or even know how to access that? Meaning like with Standard Dose, one of the companies in our portfolio, they're building a healer network. And you know, to, to go through a meditation exercise or to, to really understand, um, you know, something with your mental health, you can be guided in a way with all the tools that we have, you know, with technology in a way that gives you access that you wouldn't otherwise have. And there are other aspects like sustainability, which we just talked about, but if, if a consumer is, is buying your products, they're, you know, there's a certain value proposition there, but they also know that they're not doing harm to the planet. That makes them feel good. It gives them another reason to, to vote yes with their pocketbook um, to, to, to buy your product or service. Now on the flip side of that, like what are some of the mistakes that you see or like the false positives, right? Um, you know, there once was a time that, well, I guess you could still do it. You just need more money to do so of just acquiring consumers through Facebook and, you know, Google AdWords and just like throw tons and tons of money to your acquisition. And once that well dries up, then all of a sudden you're like, wait, what happened to all of our hockey stick growth? Right. So what are the, some of the false positives that you should be avoiding as an entrepreneur? That's so funny. The first thought I have is not is focusing on paid acquisition is the worst thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And related to that, not focusing on retention or not even tracking retention is often a mistake. It's so much easier to keep a customer than to acquire a new one. We see sometimes mistakes being made with SKU proliferation or distribution channel expansion ahead of a plan. Um, if you're, you really need to be disciplined about cash runway, especially right off the closing of a round and hit the right milestones. If you, if you run out of cash too quickly, um, it's, it's just a tougher road to travel. Yeah, totally. I mean, retention is so key and so key. And I hear it over and over again, but for whatever reason, I, I guess I, it just doesn't stick. Talk to your customers, see what their pain point is. Are you solving it? Map the road to get there, to solve them, to make them a loyal customer. They'll refer you. I mean, think of all the brands that, you know, you, recommend to your friends, right? Like um, it goes as simple as like a, like emails. We talked about the morning brew earlier. I, I definitely recommend that to my friends. Axios, there's a, you know, the Axios has a portfolio of newsletters, but their sports email is by far the most best digest. And I send that to my friends all the time. So talk to your consumers that are actually your end uh, user or customer and make sure that you're providing value podcast or book recommendations that are musts for uh, entrepreneurs other than the Venture Fizz podcast, of course. Okay. Other than the Venture Fizz podcast, Masters of Scale. Oh, yes. And then I also like to listen to Huberman Lab. Mm, he's a I haven't heard of that Stanford. One. He's a Stanford guy. He's, he's fantastic. And then this is not related to venture, but I know you said you had a daughter who's in high school. Uh, Yale Admissions has a podcast. Have you listened to it? No. Okay. It's interesting. I listen to it when I'm driving in the car and I 
always feel like I'm on the verge of them, a big reveal. And ultimately what they tell you is talk about yourself, be yourself, share, you know, there, there are no real secrets to unlock there, but it's, it's really interesting. I think in another life, I'd love to be an admissions person, you know, like they, they just talk about all the, the stories that the, that they read through in essays and, um, it's fascinating. It's just fascinating to me. Um, and then books, I follow Adam Grant's reading lists. He posts them on LinkedIn. And then I try to tick through as many as I can. So next up is Fearless by Pippa Grange. And she works with elite athletes on mindset. Mm, that sounds like an awesome one. Definitely want to check that out. Um, yeah. Masters of scale with Reed Hoffman is just, it's so good. There's so many great stories there. So that's one that I've definitely listened to many, many, many times, uh, outside of work. What else do you like to do? So I have five teenagers and I spend my weekends. <laughs> five <club> teenagers. <laughs> okay. Teenagers. Enough said. Yeah. We can just close out the podcast as well on that. <laughs> yeah. Lots of club lacrosse tournaments and girls hockey games, but, um, I like to lift weights actually. Um, that's fun for me, uh, in terms of exercise and outlet, I like to go for walks with my friends and I do some nonprofit work that I find fulfilling. Well, Lori, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and all your, uh, great experience, you know, leading up to the point of Victor's capital, which is doing incredibly meaningful work. So thank you for what you're doing and, uh, hopefully it continues to move the needle forward. Thanks so much. This was really fun, Keith. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.